size eyes. The life of a long-term multitasker. This is the Casually Profound series, where conversations create deeper connections with others and yourself, where every interaction is an opportunity to laugh, think, and feel fully, where magical moments happen spontaneously and abundantly. This series has discussions that transcend the surface level of what people do or who they are in the outer world. It aims to normalize thinking. I hope for all those engaged in this discussion, including myself, the guest, and especially you, the active listener, we stop and ponder on the ultimate question, who am I really? All while enjoying every second of it, of course. Welcome back, everyone. I am extremely excited to be chatting with a, a dear friend of mine who's been in the podcast several times now, a couple times. This will be his third time um, and second time as a guest. Conversation partner today is Adam Kamak. Uh, down in beautiful Walnut, Black Walnut Cat Bay in Houston and Rice Village, not to be confused with. Oh, Tiwa Village. I'm sorry, yeah. as, I, as I joked earlier. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're excited well, to be. Well, it's, but it's not actually named for the grin. William Marsh Rice was the uh, benefactor in the, <laughs> <from> the <laughs> university, is named, and, uh, and thus the nearby village. Right. Yeah, so. There's really no script to this one either. Um, we're just going to kind of, we're just talking as if the mics weren't there. And we'll see where this takes us. Probably some wikipedia in the middle, some rabbit holes to jump down. You, you say we're talking as if the mics aren't there. I'm well aware that there's a mic. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you're talking as if the mic's not there. I am speaking as if there is a mic there because there is. Fair enough. Well, my first question here, we're not going to do a little minute. We're not going to do a meditation this time. Um, we're gonna we're gonna jump in the deep end here. Oh God! We're gonna jump in the deep. Jump end. in the deep end. We'll save the meditation for when we record in state number three, South Carolina, in March. Yes. <laughs> um, so the, the first question that I asked in the first podcast was, "Who do others think you are? Yeah. Who do others think Adam Kamak is?" And we went down all sorts of rabbit holes there. Now, the question, basically, the follow-up question to that is, who? do you think you are ah i i see um so let me actually go back to the question about who do others think you are for a moment yes or who, who do others think i am um and i don't remember exactly how i put it because it has been 11 months um i know that i referenced uh michael edelstein's uh notion of unconditional self-acceptance uh and that perhaps it shouldn't matter but of course it does matter um and I still would say to some degree it does matter who others think you are. Um, but I would say at this point, 11 months later, I, I think that that's less significant than maybe I did 11 months ago. Um, it, it is more about who you think you are and you know, acting accordingly. Because ultimately, you know, happiness, which I, I'm seeking and I, I assume that most people are seeking. Maybe there's some people who are... You know, they just hate themselves. I don't, I, I don't know. They're not really seeking happiness. Um, or maybe some people are, you know, view, a, view what they're doing as making great sacrifices. And they're sacrificing their own happiness for the, the perceived happiness and well-being of others. Or actual happiness of others. Um, 
but you know, happiness ultimately is going to come from within. So it probably is more important what I think of myself uh, and who I think I am than who others think I am. Uh, because in order to be happy and achieve with sorts of things that I would hope to achieve, um, it would be you know, sort of a, a, a framework uh, that makes sense to me. It would be in line with, with what I think. Um, so who do I think I am? Uh, I think, I'm, first of all, uh, I said I was going to mention this, right in now in the present moment, I, I don't just think I know I am someone who is significantly sleep deprived, as you, as you said that you are as well. <laughs> uh, but moving beyond that, I mean, I think that there, there are a lot, of, a lot of things I could say. So, I mean, I can focus on particular interests of mine. Um, so I'm interested in, you know, U.S. and world travel. Um, I'm interested in history and geography and politics and sports and entrepreneurship. Um, you know, there, there are a wide variety of, of interests of mine, you know, music to a degree, movies to a degree, books to a degree, um, musicals to a degree. I mean, there, there are a wide variety of, of interests in mine. Um, but, you know, moving beyond that, you know, I think I'm someone who tries to do good. I try to do right by other people. I try to give other people the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, I probably try to do right by other people at the expense of my, of my own well-being a lot of the time. Um, because I do, I do have this sense of, of loyalty um, to people that I, that I care about or that are, you know, kind of under my responsibility, so to speak. Um, I think I'm someone who prides himself on trying to be unconventional. And maybe that's not always um, borne out as, as, it, as it could be and, and to the full extent that it could be. So maybe it's almost like a, a conservative, um, unconventional uh, line of thinking. Not conservative, meaning uh, political conservatism, but conservative in the, in the sense of just kind of, um, like it's not a radical unconventional, right? I'm not going to go live off the grid, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a cave in the middle of nowhere. Um, but I, you know, I, I do try to, uh, you know, go against the grain on a lot of preconceived notions on a lot of things that everyone just assumes that's how it is. Um, you know, I'm someone who is definitely open to, um, you know, opinions from others, feedback from others. Um, you know, I have this essay that, that you've read that will be undergoing tremendous uh, modifications where I, before I actually publish it, probably in October, that will go on, on my website. So for those of you listening in the future, adamkamak.com. My last name is spelled C-A-M-A-C. Have to get the bug in there, yeah. even though it's not live yet. Um, uh, but in that essay, you know, I, I do make reference to a lot of other people, a lot of things from, um, from pop culture, from history, from politics, from political theory, um, a wide, from music, a wide variety of different references. Because I, I am open to and interested in what other people have to say. Um, and that does influence, it can influence me. So I like to think that I'm open-minded. Um, close-minded on, you know, some sort of core values, I guess. Like there, there are some things that I know are right and that I know are wrong in terms of the way human beings should behave and the way they should treat each other. So for instance, someone is not going to convince me that murder is acceptable, right? Someone is not going to convince me that initiating aggression is acceptable, right? There are things that I, I understand. And then there are just things in terms of like trust and honesty and the way that we should treat each other. So I recognize, um, 
you know, I have a sense of, of values and, and right and wrong there, but I can definitely be swayed on all sorts of things. So I like to think that I'm open-minded. Um, I like to think that, you know, I'm, I'm friendly and approachable. Um, you know, I like to think that I am a hard worker, um, that I'm willing to hustle, that I'm willing to do what it takes to figure out how to do something correctly or, or at least the best way. Um, I'm detailed oriented, uh, which also probably leads to things taking longer than they should for me in a lot of cases, um, because I, I do get bogged down in minutia that maybe I shouldn't be getting bogged down in, but I, I like to get things right. Um, you know, when I send an email to someone, it bugs me if I go back and notice that I left out a comma that should have been there. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very detailed oriented and I, you know, along those lines, I do care about knowing information, knowing facts and getting things right. So there, you know, there's a lot of stuff jammed into my head that I, I've memorized that I, I think is useful. Um, so, you know, who, who do I think I am? You know, I'm, I'm someone who is hoping to make their impact on the world, hoping to do good for the people that I can't impact, that I can't reach, hoping to do right by other people in my life and hoping to do things that I enjoy that will help other people that I find interesting to myself and that will allow me to find, um, you know, internal happiness and satisfaction. So, I don't know, that was a, a long, rambling answer, so go for it. <laughs> Pick a booth, give your thoughts. Uh, yeah, one of the first things it. you said was uh, sacrifice. Yeah. Um, one thought I have on, like, sacrifice is the... Like, I have to quit. Because, like, I completely get when, um, let's say my parents had to sacrifice their life to immigrate from right. India to the U.S., by cause and far defeated from where so like having understood that level of sacrifice that someone needs to make to move to a different country that they don't know right. that's one level of sacrifice to set a base foundation for my generation for right. you know for their kids me and my brother <laughs> I think the way that I view sacrifice is different now it's because that sacrifice was to get a better um oh floor of living you know right uh, get a get a higher floor and get a higher ceiling of what we can achieve right and, and of course i can't speak to this as, as well as you could but i assume that there were improvements in their own quality of life that came with that and of course the satisfaction of knowing that their kids are in an environment that was going to provide a higher floor and a higher ceiling for them um i'm sure that there's tremendous satisfaction for your parents that came with that as well yeah exactly and then so then, so like, for me, sacrifice, now that I have that, like, all right, solid foundation, I'm not, like, worrying about, like, my daily needs, right? Uh, am I going to have a roof over my head, all, you know, food, all that type of stuff? Right. Um, now it's, like, more in this Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's more on, you know, the upper three, four ones rather than the bottom three, four. So I'm thinking about, I've thought about sacrifice as something that is, it's like, if I have resources available, then sacrificing, I always view as like a scarcity mindset, where it's like sacrifice, the connotation of sacrifice to me is now like that you're losing out on something. Right. And so if you're losing out on something, it's just another version of saying like FOMO, 
or FOMO is, a, let's say, a specific application of sacrifice. Um, at least the, like, like that's the way I view it right now. Like if I'm sacrificing going on a, like maybe I'm sacrificing um, social life if I'm working more at at work. Um, but is that, you know, but, but that's only if like, if I'm, the work that I'm doing is not in alignment with who I want to be, et cetera. Well, and presumably at that point in time, it's, it's a sacrifice in some sense, but it's also just a prioritization. And you, you value accomplishments in your professional life over um, experiences in your social and personal life at that particular moment of the time. So you're willing to allocate your time in, in such a way to, to face that. So, I mean, we, you're right. There, there is, obviously, there's this notion of scarcity. We can't always do everything that we want. You know, there, there are only 24 hours in a day, or I, I guess if we want to get technical about this, what, 20, 23 hours and what it be, 53 minutes? <laughs> uh, but okay, 20, you know, there are, only, there are only so many things that can happen in a day. There are only so many things that can happen in a year just because there are time constraints. Um, but so, you know, we, there, we do have to give things up just because we only live one life and we can only devote our time and energy to so many things at, at you know, at, in each, on each day and in each given, given moment. Um, but then, you know, there's a, definitely a prioritization component that, that comes with that. So at that moment in time, we're valuing you know, what we are choosing to do over the other things that we're not choosing to do. And then in the future, we may look back on that and decide that we made a mistake and then hopefully we you know, we learn from that experience and grow and recalibrate and adjust our prioritization um, system in the future to correct for those perceived mistakes. Yeah, that as you're talking there, it's like, I'm just trying to think out loud here is, is sacrifice a word that people use who don't have aligned and defined priorities. I don't think that's the only definition, but I think that's one possible definition. Right. Uh, if they don't have something figured out, then like, oh, I'm sacrificing this. I'm sacrificing my social life. I'm sacrificing whatever it is. Um, I, I think some of it may be if they don't have defined priorities. Some of it may be a recognition. They don't know that they're doing this, but um, they're a, recogni a, and I'm, you know, a recognition without recognizing it of scarcity. Um, I mean, it really comes down to, I guess, what people value and how they think that their time is going to best be spent. Um, but pres presumably what they're doing, they're doing because they either think, uh, even if it's brutal in the moment, it's going to lead them to where they want to go, or it is going to do good for people or an idea that they strongly believe in. And then that feeling of doing good by those people or by that concept is going to pay dividends for them personally in the future. Um, while providing a source of purpose and contentment in the, in the presence. Um, I mean, sacrifice is, a, is an interesting, you know, it, it is an interesting topic, right? And kind of, kind of peeling down on this, but, um, you know, like if, if we think of a sacrifice bunt in baseball, which I, I know it's not in vogue with sabermetrics, but like you're, you're giving up an out to advance the runner, right? So you are giving something up, an out. There are only 27 of those that we did unless it goes extra innings or, or if you're the whole, uh, 
Yeah, if, if you're up, and if, if you're the home team and you're ahead, 24 outs. But anyways, let's go off of the 27, or rain delay. But let's go off of the uh, rain-shortened game. Let's go off of the 27 number. The only 27 of those, you're giving up one in order to accomplish something that you place more value on in that moment. You know, getting the runner in scoring position in a tie game in the eighth inning. Trying to bring the runner home from third, you know, in a, in a key situation in the sixth. Whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it is this... You know, recognition that you can't have there. You, there is scarcity, and while maybe you could have, maybe you don't have to sacrifice, right? Maybe you can work really hard on that on that project, and you can have the social life experiences that you want. But at least at that point in time, you're deciding that in order to reach, in order to achieve the priority that uh, the thing that you prioritize more, success at work you've decided that it makes sense to give up on social life. Maybe you don't have to, maybe you could have both, but you're deciding that you value work accomplishments at that time, at that point in time, more so than social life uh, experiences. And that the best way to ensure that you have those accomplishments at work, the best way to position yourself to have those accomplishments at work is to not have some of those social life experiences. Yeah, as you're talking, Darren, I mean, we didn't talk about sports on the, in the last two interviews. We did not. We, we, we had we had to go there. Of course, of course. <laughs> the, I, I, I think that analogy is a good one because actually, I think sacrifice. I, I think it can. It's more of a mindset, actually. It's it can. I think it's both scarce and abundant, just depend on what your actual mindset is. Because in that situation of a sacrifice, but it's it can be viewed as abundant as it's a way. For me to put myself in position to score the game-winning run, right? If that's the situation, so and, and we don't know that it's the right move, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of like that that Robert Frost poem, "The Road Not Taken," you know, and and, and he says, you know, and take the road not ta- he takes the road not taken, and it made all the difference. Well, it did make all the difference in the sense that that's what he chose. We don't know what happens if he if he takes the road that is taken, right? Right? <laughs> we don't know what would have happened, and maybe it would have been better, maybe it would have been worse. So, you know, if the team doesn't doesn't bunch there and he swings away maybe it's a two-run homer or he could ground into a double play you know we we don't know but with the objective at that point in the game being to score a run because it's tied or it's a one-run game or whatever whatever the case may be um the determination is made that the best way to position themselves as a team to do that is to make that sacrifice by so we don't know what happens if they don't, but that's what they do because it is going to best position them for the goal that they have, the top priority goal that they have in that particular moment in the game. Yeah. When, so essentially they're, it's, they're setting a higher floor basically of all, all the possible outcomes, home run, strike, strike out, you know, run out, whatever it is. Right. Um, they're setting a higher floor for the most probabilistic outcome. Right. And and I think that's like a big mindset shift for people because when we view being successful in the external world, it's like... Which itself is a very interesting right. yeah, yeah, topic. topic. Yeah. Um, but when we think about that, it's like, okay, to become famous or to become like wealthy... I have to do all these like extravagant things, but really I've seen and found so far that it's the people who raise their floor who have more success 
that when you focus on raising your floor, your ceiling automatically becomes higher. Right. And so it's like one thing I heard um, Naval Ravikant was say on one of his podcasts that he was on was he likes to think in life and in business about um, like framing things as if there were a thousand universes of possible outcomes. And how many of these universes would this action that I take yield the desired outcome? Right. Right? So like, so in that case of the sacrifice bunt, let's say maybe there's a 30% chance that it, that you win the game versus maybe 20% if you just don't do that. Right. Or even on the flip side, when you intentionally walk a person, right? It, it seems contradictory to what you want to be doing within the context of the game of baseball in general. But in a specific situation, you're, you're sacrificing the person on base because of the overall context of what you're doing. So it's like, yeah, so I think whatever the actual outcome is or decision that people take, in and of itself, I don't think it's abundant or scarce. But I think when you view it as a sacrifice or when you view it as this is a way, this is a stepping stone for me to go to the next step. Right. I think that is the key thing there, not the actual action you take, but the intention behind the action. But I will say one thing about baseball is even though there's not a clock like there is in other sports, there's still a pace at which the game needs to move along. So managers are forced into decisions in terms of you know whether to intentionally walk someone, whether to put on the sacrifice bond, things like that. In life, we don't always have those situations where we are forced into decisions. And the indecision can be very paralyzing and can lead to a lot of unhappiness and can delay what really needs to happen or what would be best for someone. So depending, regardless of what someone prioritizes as being higher, and this is an issue that I, you know, that I recognize I need to work on in my own life, but regardless of whether what someone prioritizes as being higher, maybe even more important to that is just deciding something and going for it. And as we were talking about earlier before we started recording, if you realize down the road that you made the wrong decision, then, okay, you have that data, you have those experiences, and you can adjust accordingly moving forward. If you just sit there going, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do, I don't know what I'm going to do, <laughs> you're, you're, you're not making progress, you're not gathering data, it's just the status quo. And if you're dissatisfied, if you are satisfied with the status quo, then keep doing what you're doing, my blessing. But if you're dissatisfied with the status quo, you got to choose something and go with it. Whether it's something that, whether it's something that makes sense to you, whether it's something that someone else suggested and you don't really know, but it sounds good, whether it's something that you think makes perfect sense and everyone else lasting you, which as you know, the great investor Jim Rogers points out, that probably means that you're really doing the right thing. If, if, if everyone laughs at you, that probably means you're really on the right track. <laughs> uh, and even if you're not successful with it, you're wildly successful, at least you're doing what you want and you're gonna be happy. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's important at some point just to go for it. And if it's wrong, it's wrong, you correct it. But um, you know, as, uh, as, as long as you're not like, in, in jail or significantly injured or dead or um, you know deathly ill as a result just go for it and if there are issues you know 
then you correct and you learn and you make changes and you go a different path next time. Yeah. We want to work. One of the things that you mentioned was about for these potential rabbit holes. So you alluded to uh, external factors of success. Yeah. How do you view success for yourself? Uh, I, I, I knew that question was coming, but I, I was so busy uh, just putting out these other answers. Yeah. <laughs> how, how do I view um, success for myself? Um, yeah, I think it really is doing things that bring you satis internal satisfaction and ensure that you're able to have the lifestyle that you want. Or I guess maybe I should be using I instead of this generic second person you, maybe I should be using the first person. Things that I want, th things that bring me internal satisfaction, um, things that ensure that I can have the lifestyle that I want, things that I view as making a positive impact in other people's lives, um, in part because it benefits them and in part because it does bring me tremendous internal satisfaction to recognize that. Um, and really having the courage and the fearlessness and the confidence to do what I think I should be doing, really following my heart and my gut. Um, you know, again, with Jerry Vaynerchuk, you know, we only, something he would point out, we only get one shot at this thing. We only get one shot at life. Shouldn't be any regrets. So I, I and, and again, this is something that I, I have to move off of. And to something that I, I discussed in my uh, forthcoming essay, adamkamek.com. I'm found, but, you know, there's, there's this notion from when you're a little kid that you always have to be doing what the authority figures are telling you. Your parents, your teachers, your bosses, your coaches, whatever the case may be, there's some authority figure and they're, you know, they're telling you what you need to do and then you go do it. Um, and I think that probably works great when someone is seven years old. But when you're an adult, that's probably not the way to find internal satisfaction. You know, the way to find internal satisfaction and contentment and not have regret is to do what you think is the right move. Even if everyone else laughs at it, even if everyone else tries to talk you out of it, you do what you think is the right move. And hey, if everyone tries to talk you out of it, then you have a chip on your shoulder and you have this idea that I want to prove everyone wrong. And then when you do prove everyone wrong, you can either laugh in their face, which is great fun, or um, you know, or you can recognize that you know if these people really do care about you, and I would assume parents obviously fall in that category, friends fall in that category, they care, right? They'll be happy for you when you achieve what makes sense to you that you want to achieve, even if they suggested something else, even if they try to talk you out of it, they'll be happy for you when you reach that level. So I, I don't view success as being a, being a billionaire or living in a mansion or having a yacht in the Bahamas or anything like that. Um, or I, I, to me, success is doing things that bring you joy and contentment, trying to do good work for people that you care about, making a positive impact on other people in your life, surrounding yourself with good people that you love and that love you both in terms of friends and family. Um, we probably don't use the word love enough. You know, love always it seems to have this uh, romantic context way too often. But, you know, there, there's, there's a, you know, a non-romantic aspect of love that we probably overlook too often. 
but surrounding yourself with people that you love and and that love you and really you know having the courage to just go for it and not have regrets you know you, when i'm you know when i'm old you know i don't want to be thinking back on the 10 things that i didn't do that i wish i had done and i don't want my you know my grandkids to see me whining about what i didn't do and be influenced by that I want them to be inspired, not demoralized when they come and visit me. <laughs> right, it's like, oh man, all these regrets that my, my grandpa did, you know, had that he didn't do. Right. Um, like, nah. He's like, one of the big things that I'm thinking about is like the process of unlearning. Of unlearning? Well, yeah, yeah so I think the process of learning is really a process of unlearning. Yes, oh, I, I look. As someone who is intrigued by the notion of unschooling, I am fully on board with the notion of unloading. You don't have to sell me on that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think there's another one of like, it's, uh, so there's some, what we learn, what we relearn, right. what we unlearn, right. and I think there's a fourth one of what we don't learn in the first place. Yes. So, like in the analogy of Robert Frost's poem, right? It's not just the it's not not just the road less traveled, and it's not the the other road either. It's like, what if we just stay at the same place, and what if we don't take a road? Right. It's like, or what if we, or what if we take a, I don't know, like a machete with us and we make our own road? Exactly. <laughs> right. So it's, um, yeah, process of unlearning is like, I guess well, since you've mentioned, like that's a high interest of yours um and a big big theme how has that kind of unfolded for you like what thoughts do you have about unlearning unlearning yeah well i, I don't want you to expand on your thoughts yeah. you know we said this was going to be more conversation oh, yeah. oh it's drifting back in the oh, no. <laughs> you and me you know it's like your mike wallace from 60 minutes oh, back yeah. in the day the, <laughs> the stilted question list you know we need to get that clock ticking in the background yes um yeah, I mean, uh, you know, unlearning, right? So there, there are variations of this. I mean, some of it is just, you know, is, is just facts, right? Like they, they tell you in school something and then you go back later and you go, that, that's, that's not correct, right? They teach you in U.S. history in high school, the Whiskey Rebellion was entirely in Pennsylvania. Then when you're in college, because you're a total nerd, you're sitting there reading about the Whiskey Rebellion at the dining hall and you go, ah, so was it just limited to Pennsylvania? Right. So some of it is just is just facts. Right. Um, you know, or like we're always taught that the Wright brothers had the first flight. Well, there's some controversy. There's some suggestions that Gustav Whitehead had the first flight or that Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. You know, there's some disputing that or Alexander Graham Bell on the telephone. Well, maybe it was Alicia Gray who had invented the telephone. Right. So some of it is like actual facts that you were told and that later on you either um, you, you recognize that there's reason for controversy or that it's just 100% wrong, right? So I know we mentioned before that I'm currently a high school teacher. That is coming to an end here um, at the end of May. You know, we're recording this in early January, so four and a half months away, right? But um, uh, on uh, a couple of days ago in one of my classes, uh, a student asked what AD stands for, you know, in the, in the year, um, uh, you know, the chronology conventions, yeah. right? And um, uh, I said that it stood for Anno Domini, a uh, Latin phrase. And uh, another student said, I thought it stood for after death. My sixth grade teacher told me it stood for after death. 
It doesn't. That's wrong. Because then what happens to the 33 years when Jesus was alive? We have before Christ and after death. Those 33 years just vanish. They're not accounted for. So it's nonsensical if you actually think about it. Right? But so that's something that she was taught by an authority figure that she respected. She needs to unlearn that information and relearn it. So some of it is just facts, based on facts. And some of it is casting doubt on things, uh, on, on facts um, uh, that are open to controversy. But some of it is not as simple as facts. Some of it is just, um, you know, experiential in the sense that uh, you're always told something is a certain way or you need to behave a certain way or you need to do a certain way. You know, you need to work really hard in school. You need to go to college after you graduate from high school. You need to get a good job in college. You know, you need to work at that company for an extended period of time. You can't leave a job unless you've been there X number of years. Right? A lot of this is just sort of uh, conventional wisdom. And then as you have these experiences and actually, as you're actually going through it, decide, well, I don't know if going to college was the right decision for me. Everyone tells me I should go to law school. Everyone tells me I should get an MBA. I don't want to do that. I don't know why that would benefit me. Right? Everyone tells me I need to work my way up the corporate hierarchy. I know this is something that you talk about in the, you know, the, the draft of, the, of your, your book that, that I've been looking at. And then you actually start doing it and you're like, I'd rather gouge my eyes out than actually go through with, with working by way of the corporate hierarchy. Right? So some of the unlearning process is just facts. Right? And a lot of what we're taught, especially um, maybe less so with the hard sciences, but a lot of what we're taught in school with, with history and literature and things that are a little more interpretive, we're taught it in a very Manichaean sass. And there are actual facts, you know, like, um, you know, the, the day, like Fort Sumter, the Battle of Fort Sumter was on April 12th, 1861. Like that, that is a fact, right? So there are actual facts that we can't really dispute. Um, unless you don't think the Battle of Fort Sumter actually occurred. That would be a weird conspiracy theory that no one's mentioned it before. I'm pretty sure it happens. Um, uh, but the interpretation of these sorts of things, right? Like, um, uh, you know, we're always taught like the, the pure, the pure food and drug act, you know, was, was a good thing that led to the FDA. And before the pure food and drug act, <laughs> um, you know, people were, were eating sausages that had limbs in them. And thank God the, you know, the pure food and drug act was passed and we got the FDA and that's why there aren't limbs in our sausages anymore. Right. And you go and look at what this was based on. It was based on an Upton Sinclair novel, the jungle, um, where he, you know, he's getting grants from. Uh, socialist and, and progressive in the sense of progressive progressive era of the early 1900s um, entities to write this book and of course we never actually get names of the people whose limbs are supposedly in the sausages right so you know it's, it's made up right I mean I mean maybe there were sausages with limbs but nothing not not what Upton Sinclair was describing right so um, you know some of it is is unlearning facts and interpretations of facts and reinterpreting facts right that's always great fun is reinterpreting facts um, and being open to new interpretations, sort of like a revisionism almost. So that's great fun. But some of it is just, um, you know, conventional wisdom that we're always told about the path that we need to go through life. And you start going down that path and you realize, I hate this. Maybe that works for, you know, the guy I went to third grade with. Maybe that works for my next door neighbor. That doesn't work for me. That's not what I am going to do to be successful and happy based on the way that I define those words. So some of unlearning is based on facts. Some of unlearning is um, based on experience. But you know, the comedian Will Rogers, he, he had this line, 
Um, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher it slightly. So we may need to we may need to do some googling, some impromptu googling <laughs> while we're on while we're uh, talking. But um, you know, it, it's not it's not what you don't know that's the problem. It's it's what you think you know that just ain't so. That's that's where the issue lies. Um, and uh, you know, I, that there's there seems to be a lot of truth to that. So I don't know. Let's get you. Let's get before I start talking about you know Will Rogers dying in a plane crash in Barrow, Alaska, and the airport being named for him there, with Wiley <laughs> along with the aviator Wiley Post. You start talking about your interpretation of unlearning. Wait, the, 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 yeah, there's the Will Rogers in Fairbanks. You said what was that? Which city? Oh, so so Will Rogers was from Oklahoma, so the Oklahoma City Airport is named for Will Rogers, oh, okay. right? Because he was from Oklahoma City, but Barrow, Alaska, which has since been formally renamed Ukiagvik, the the indigenous name the northernmost community in the U.S., right on the Arctic Ocean, well well north of the Arctic Circle. The Air Force there is named for Will Rogers and Wiley Post, who was a, an aviator, um, because they both they were on a plane that uh, crashed in that area, and they died in a plane crash in, in northern Alaska. Mm, didn't know that. Right? See? So, so there's two Will Rogers airports, basically. <laughs> right? Crossing. <laughs> I don't. I, how, how many? How many people have multiple airports yeah. named for them? Right. I mean, I'm, I'm a little jealous. I'm at zero right now. I would say. I would say probably Kim Jong Un, Kim Jong Il, maybe. <laughs> well, but well, I don't, I don't know. If there's any airports. Right. So the the one in Pyongyang, I think, is called Sunan International Airport. Oh, okay. Um, and I don't think there are any other airports in North Korea that are currently uh, operating commercial flights. There are other airports. Right. Yeah. Um. I don't know. Now, now, now that's an interesting question. <laughs> People have multiple airports named after that. Uh, let's stop getting sidetracked. Give me your views on unlearning. What's new? Um, yeah, what's new? Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, unlearning. I mean, while you're saying this, I'm thinking Roland Garros, you know, the namesake of the, um, you know, the, the tennis French complex open. where they have the French Open. The airport in Reunion, Saint-Denis Reunion is, uh, I guess it's, it's not Saint-Denis, the capital. It's not in Saint-Denis. Um, but the airport in Reunion uh, is named for him, so I'm like, I'm, I'm sitting here going through my mind, is there an airport in mainland France, in, in like Fred, France proper on the European continent that also bears his name? So go ahead and talk about that, right. <laughs> Open tab. The Tarivas. Oh, we, we love opening tabs. One of my favorite pastas. All right, so I'm learning. For me, it's been a through process of well, first, I think you have to give the time and space for it. I think, you know, the normal hustle and bustle, external factors of society, it's like, there's no time and space that we take to actually not consume information, to not right. have inputs, to actually, because unlearning is not just not having zero inputs or zero outputs. It's, you know, the correct metaphor is, it's like, it's not having... Like, like, like it's, it's having neither inputs nor outputs, right? Right. Um, for, for the process of unlearning. And so we need to actually take that time and space to understand what have we learned so that we can unlearn it. Because I, like, I, I think the first yeah, step two then there is like recognizing what we have learned and connecting it to who we are and who we want to be right and only in that context then can we more effectively unlearn whatever we've learned 
So like for me, that process has been through, through journaling primarily. And I view journaling as a form of processing, whether emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, etc. And being able to take that time and space to journal, I've got to understand like, all right, here's the things that I've learned, you know, factually that I need to revise. Here are the things that I need, would like to spend time on unpacking emotionally that I've explicitly and implicitly learned growing up, being around parents, being around teachers, being around my friends, growing up in Kansas City, being around Indians, being around Americans, everyone. And some of the biggest things to unlearn are the things that we don't even know that we need to learn, right? Or things that we don't even realize that we learn. We, we just take it for granted, let's assume. Exactly. Like, and having this inquiry mindset, this curiosity mindset too. Like, yeah, like, what is, like, what are the things that I've learned? What are the things that I've not unlearned? Um, about to say something. Well, no, I, I was just going to say, we, we talked about the, the public school system last time, so we don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. But it's almost as if just the nature and structure of the public school system, it's kind of beaten out of us, this inquiry, inquiry mindset, right? And we're not really, it, it, well, it, we, we don't even know that we could be doing this in, in a lot of cases. Well, so it, it, I don't think it's, well, I don't think it's the inquiry mindset that's beaten out of us. It's the inquiry, it's the inquiry process within the context of learning. It's not, I, I, I don't think there's enough emphasis placed on the inquiry process of unlearning. Right. Right. I think it's like learn, learn, learn. There's this quote out there, um, like about how sp like specialization is you learn more and more, uh, you know, more and more, or it's like you learn everything about, God damn it. I need to look this up. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Um, but, but basically the profanity on the sleep deprived profound conversation. Um, but essentially, you know, everything about nothing, essentially, but you know, like everything about something until you like, until like it's nothing, uh, until like it funnels down and right. really like, what do you actually, what, like, what have you learned at the end of the day? It's almost this process of like this, uh, of, um, of, of induction, right? Like we or sorry, of deduction, where you keep going down, down, down until you're trying to break atoms, until you're trying to break all these different things. And then what if our initial premise, our initial assumption was like wrong in the first place? Right. And then we have to not just unlearn the things that were results, but we have to unlearn our initial like assumption. Right. And so like one thing that I've... And in a lot of cases, the initial premise is wrong. Right. Or, or maybe it's not wrong, but it's wrong for our truth. It's wrong for who we are. It might be right for someone else, but it's wrong for us. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, like one of the things I was thinking about is like, so, so like these beliefs that we have, we have these beliefs. We hold them to be self-evident. <laughs> we think, yeah, we think they're self-evident, but under, underlying those beliefs are assumptions or like I, I would say assume definitions of what those beliefs are so like if I have a belief that I mean, you know, this is a table like that's incumbent upon you and I agreeing that 
we know what a table is and what a table is. If it makes you feel better, I agree that this is a table. Right. <laughs> Good. I'm glad we're on the same page there. Um, but like, you know, it, it's like for people who are, let's say, colorblind, right? When we say, hey, that's red for, for people who are colorblind, that's not red for them or, you know, what well, it's, it's what they, I mean, so I, I don't know what it, I, I the, the colorblind experience is yes. like. Yeah, I'm very, I'm, I'm imposing here. <laughs> so I, I don't know what that experience is like. Um, I assume that they can't see red the way that we see red, see red, but maybe they do have some way of perceiving that that is a different color than that thing. Right, so I, I don't know what that experience is like. It's clear to me that it, it, it seems obvious to me that they would not have uh, the ability to see that as vividly red the way that we can. But maybe they do have some other way of differentiating colors and red means something to them. It just means something different to them than it means to us. I don't know. I don't know much about colorblind in this. I, I don't need time. I said, well, I'll say, I'll add that to same as saying, open, open another tag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so like I, the, the frameworks that I have, actually, this will be one of the things that's included in the book as I, or in draft two of it, I, would, I should say, of uh, a, a mental model of these beliefs and an underlying assumed definition level that we have. But I think the th deeper level there is our open-mindedness or the elasticity of our assumed definitions. Like, because, so you were, like, people have, this is, so let's bring, let's bring politics into this. <laughs> Which is not a phrase that many people say. Well, right, but I, I'm here. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> so, when when we try when we talk about politics, or when when people talk about politics, we're talking on our beliefs level. Like, hey, I believe this is the right way to govern. I believe this is the right way to govern, etc. And then have to talk about policies if that. You know, I don't even know if people talk on that level. I think you're giving people way too much. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, uh, or but, but what they say is indicative of that. Right. I mean, I think by and large, when people talk about politics, they're talking on tribalist terms, right? It's it's like a it, it's like a football game, right? And, and and they're they're rooting for their team, and someone told them that their team supports this, and that this is happening to their team, and that this is what their team should be doing. So they talk in terms of that, right? But but so yes, to your point, that's a, that's their belief, whether they want to have the conversation or not, right? And they, there's those assumed definitions that are implicit within those beliefs, but there is that ability for people to change how have this malleable mindset of course that which by the way to keep it with politics <laughs> there is something that something that no one no one says right uh, no i i think that malleable mindset and the ability to change is something that um you know, it, it gets overlooked and it's discounted uh you know I, I think there is value in consistency and having core principles that you hold and and core values and being consistent with that um but like i said at the beginning you know my answer on who others think i am and how much that matters as of 11 months ago is different uh now that, than it was today right so my view and as i mentioned also i'm open my well within the within my value system i'm open-minded and i can be swayed and i've been influenced by any number of people and i'm still influenced by all sorts of people. Like I mentioned Gary Vaynerchuk a couple times in this interview a year ago that I would not have been messaging him, right? So I, I, I'm open to being influenced by other people. Um, so, you know, from a, in terms of politics, right, 
um, something that really kind of stuck with me. Now, Tulsi Gabbard is obviously a controversial figure. And, um, you know, I think that there, there, there's some things I like about her and some things I don't like about her. And I, I uh, generally view, hold her in higher regard than, than most people in the political realm. But, yeah, I, I, not your, I'm not a cheerleader for Tulsi Gabbard, per se, or anything like that. But when she ran for president in the 2020 cycle, um, there was a lot of controversy about views that she had expressed um, vis-a-vis gay marriage. Uh, now, these views that she had expressed, this is like around 2004. She was in her early 20s. This is a time when gay marriage was not widely accepted, when it was um, a very controversial issue. Now it's, I mean, pretty much everyone accepts it, right? I mean, um, I suppose maybe, maybe there's some people who would push back, but by and large, you know, even, even among conservatives, you know, social conservatives, it, they're fine with it. They, they, they moved on, right? It, it, they're, not, they're not fighting on this anymore, right? Um, and people were, were shocked and appalled. Oh, she said this thing about gay marriage 15, 16 years ago. Well, yes, but, you know, you know, she was, what, like her late 30s when she was running for president and her early 20s when she said these things. I, I think it's fair to say that people are allowed to change their minds on things over a 15, 16-year period. But this is like, oh, no, we need to write her off. We need to, you know, she needs to be uh, excommunicated from the Democratic Party. And you know, she clearly was an outlier in a lot of ways of the Democratic Party, and she's not a Democrat anymore. But I don't know, the way that that whole thing happened was, was, was bothersome um, because people should be allowed, as, as circumstances change, as their views evolve, as they gain new information and process new information, there should be an opening for people to be able to change their views and, and adjust. I mean, to me, that, that doesn't mean that now, there are instances where it's flip-flopping, right? We see, we see this in politics. Uh, and and I, I picked Tulsi Gabbard because she seems to be one of the few people in politics actually has some level of integrity. We see a lot of times in politics, people just say what they think they need to say to get donations and to get votes. Um, and, and that's problematic. But evolving on views, changing our minds, and a lot of the times, that's just a part of the growth process. That's just a part of reevaluating who we are how we perceive the actions of those around us and those that we come into contact with and reaching new conclusions based off of this reevaluation, this unlearning process and new information that we're gathering and experiencing. Yeah, and when, when people change their views, they view that as like disloyal. Right. Or like, oh, you're not consistent. So I think there is that, that balance. Right. That and, needs- and there is value in consistency, right? So like a, a, another rare politician that I actually think has integrity and I, I wouldn't even consider him a politician. You know, Ron Paul was in Congress from the, you know, the mid '70s up until, uh, you know, the end of the uh, up, up until January of 2013, and he ran for president three times, twice as a Republican, once as a Libertarian. And he would always talk about how consistent he was. And it was true. You could play clips of him from the '80s and play clips of him from 2012, and he was saying the exact sort of things. He was say, he was um, advocating for the same sorts of beliefs. But that level of consistency, I don't think that's because he was unwilling to evolve. I think he's very much willing to evolve. I think that was because he identified a consistent, he identified a framework and a set of core values. And he could be convinced on certain things, but he wasn't going to veer from those values. So I think there's, I think that type of consistency is good. Now you can still be convinced that your values are wrong, but once you identify values that you determine are correct, it should take a lot to push you off of those values. 
But at the same time, there, there should be room for changing your mind and evolving as new information and experiences come your way. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I, I really think it just boils down to that open-mindedness. Yeah. Um, how open-minded we are, how close-minded we are to learn, unlearn, relearn, yeah. learn, um, and have those conversations. And I think it really starts with being around people who aren't us, like on, on a values level, on a religious level, on a intellectual level, on at a political level, all these different realms, domains of our life. Just being around those people will help us challenge those beliefs and those definitions. So we'll help them challenge our beliefs and our definitions. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I know I have to run to the airport. <laughs> yes. Uh, usually I'm, I'm fond of the whole uh, yes. aviation experience, but it's, it's cutting this conversation. I know, unfortunate. Uh, as, as well as this, I feel like this is the first time in a while that we've met up and haven't played Pan Am. Oh my God! Yes, yeah, so. as the audience, uh, we we referenced Pan Am before. Do you want to give them like the thirty-second overview yeah. of how the thirty-second overview of how the game was supposed to work, and then the thirty-second overview of how? We <laughs> yes, I mean we we bought the game in uh, I think March of twenty twenty. I want to say twenty twenty one. Yeah, twenty twenty one. I don't think most people are doing much of anything in March of twenty twenty. So yeah, as I said, that was like that doesn't sound right. <laughs> um, it was twenty twenty one when you visited for your spring break from school, but. Normally the gameplay, you know, there's a series of rounds. Within those rounds, there are some steps. So sorry, uh, there are phases within <laughs> yeah. those rounds. And yeah, get the terminology right. I'm relying on you on this part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and within the phases, there are steps. And we like to go by the book. <laughs> uh, by, you could call that. Yes. <laughs> and go through every step, phase, round, and playing of the Pan Am game, yeah. the board game. Uh, th there's also frequent quizzing about airport codes yes. and facts about destinations. Like, yes. Uh, so normally, yeah. um, a, a game that says on the box maybe 60 to 90 minutes to play usually takes <laughs> three to four hours. Well, when we played Pandemic, I think it said on the box it was supposed to take 45 minutes, so it took us about three and a half hours. Exactly. So that's, that's just any game time <laughs> play, just three exit. Ellie, sadly, down. Uh, but yeah, I, I uh, thank you for having me on your show once again. Um, there are a lot of topics that we started touching on a little bit here and then we didn't really explore a whole lot. So um, not that there's ever any shortage of things for us to discuss, but uh, there, there's a lot of grist for the, uh, the future podcast mill, so to speak. So um, in March when we recorded South Carolina for state number three, We'll have to figure out a state number four. Maybe we go to Virginia when I come through in June or something. Like maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe that'll, maybe that'll be the stop. If you were here longer, we, I would have driven to Louisiana. We would, we would have like, gone to Panera Bread in Lake Charles or something. <laughs> oh, wow. And, um, and I would have crossed the state off my list of being to all 50. Have, you, ne have you never been to Louisiana? Wait, no, sorry, no. I have been to New Orleans. What am I saying? Oh, okay. All right, sorry. A little worried there. So, so, so that is an objective fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, don't, I don't think anyone's disputing the boundaries of Louisiana at the present time. At, at, in, the, yes. in the past, yes. In the future, who knows? Yes, in the present, we don't, uh, we don't know. Very few people. Yeah. Probably. But yeah, thank you for, uh, for having me on your show once again. This is always a blast. Um, plenty of directions for us to continue this in March. Appreciate it. Love the conversation, and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed. We'll talk to you guys next time on the Casually Profound series on the Size Life Podcast. <laughs>